about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. One Kings nineteen, one to nine. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, "May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them." Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, "Get up and eat." He looked around, and there, by his head, was some bread baked over hot coals, and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, "Get up and eat." For the journey is too much for you. So he got up, and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled forty days and forty nights, until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, folks. Uh, let me add my welcome to Matt's. My name's Andrew Errington. I'm the senior minister here.、Uh, it's really good to be with you as we con- continue this series on Elijah. There's a little sermon outline in the、uh, sheets you got on the way in.、Um, is that me crumbling? Crumbling? Maybe. Not sure what I can do about that, but you'll live.、Um, Can I just add as well that if you are new or recently kind of come, or even if this is your first week,、uh, do please feel free to come along to the welcome lunch. We'd, we'd love my wife and I and, and my kids would love to、uh, welcome you there.、Um, and another way you can do it is just by using the QR code form on the front of your outlines. If you just that'll take you to a form, and if you say, "Hey, I'd like to come to the welcome lunch,"、um, that'll be an easy way to do that. Can we pray, and then we'll consider this this passage. Almighty God, would you open our minds to learn of you and from you, and would you open our hearts to your love for us in your Son Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray? Amen. One of the notable characteristics of our time might be said to be a sense of disillusionment. A lot of us have experienced disillusionment in the last few days,、uh, as any lingering optimism that modern technological nations 
wouldn't go to war with one another. Crashed down with the buildings in Kiev hit by cruise missiles. And the bleakness of reality mocked our naivety. Other buoyant expectations have come to grief in recent years too, haven't they? Perhaps about the climate, about poverty, about technology. Sometimes as well, and on a smaller scale, people get disillusioned with church. There's a bit of that going on today. Some of us, I know, have recently listened to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It tells the story of uh, the collapse of a huge church in North America called Mars Hill. It collapsed after the weight of a number of significant failings of the senior pastor. The weight of it suddenly became too much. It fell in a heap. It's a really sad story. It's a bit shabby as well. It's kind of lame story, but it's a sad story because for a lot of people, it was an experience of massive disappointment and disillusionment. This ministry and this church that had looked so wonderful, so life-giving, so powerful, turned out to be rotten at the center. But experiences of disillusionment and just bad disappointment. They aren't always as dramatic as that. Sometimes they can take the form of just a growing, gradual realisation that hopes have not come to pass, that promises... I reckon that's this this chord, unfortunately. That's super annoying. But I'm just going to press on and see how we go. If it gets too much, put up your hand. Okay? Sometimes they can take the form that hopes have not come to pass... The promises made, I'm going to give up, actually. This is going to be amazing on the recording. I can't hold it and preach. It just doesn't work. Too handsy. Oh, that doesn't even fit into that. This is so good. All right. No, that will come through bad. I'm just going to hold it. But if you could get the stand, there is a stand that goes with this. That would be great. We're talking about disillusionment. Here it is, right here, folks. This, you thought this church was slick. And here you are. A rude awakening is happening right in front of you. Um... I do want to try and refocus because this is, this is a, like it's a difficult experience for people, right? When you realise that, oh, thank you, Alex. It's got the big bit at the top. Yeah. Sorry, sound guys, for the difficulty there. Um, it's important just to regroup and, 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 and get back on this train because it can be a really difficult experience. Even if it's just a slow, steady experience that prom- promises made either explicitly or implicitly haven't been kept, <laughs> or that people haven't turned out to be what they said they were. Becoming disillusioned should actually be a really good thing, right? Because it means losing an illusion that you had, realizing that a false 
belief that you have held is in fact false and giving it up. That's a good thing, isn't it? But it can be incredibly difficult to do. It can have, it can involve an enormous sense of loss when hopes are disappointed and things that seem seem so precious, that are so precious, can be protected and held onto no longer. It can involve feeling foolish and frustrated with ourselves and can leave us with a very challenging task of finding our bearings in a landscape without the, the landmarks that we've navigated by up until now. This is actually a painful business And we need to open it up to conversation rather than to just close it down and avoid it. And we can be helped in that direction, I think, by the beginning of 1 Kings 19. We've broken this chapter up into two parts over over these weeks. And in this first part, we see Elijah go through an experience of spiritual desolation in which his hopes are dashed. After the incredible triumph of chapter 18, we see now a very human, very frail Elijah, and we can learn from him and what he goes through, I think. The story of Elijah at this point reminds us of three things. And I've lost my clicker. Matt, it's just over there on the... This is so good, isn't it? So... Can you go to the next slide? Thank you, Sang-Yong, the next slide. Three things. That will help us talk well, I think, about disappointment and disillusionment. Firstly, it reminds us that sometimes God's people will be shocked and desolated. It's a simple point, but an important point. Second, that God does not forsake us in our desolation, but nor does he give way to it. And third, that sometimes a journey through desolation is hiding something glorious. First then, Elijah's experience reminds us of something, as I said, quite simple but very important. Sometimes God's people will be shocked and desolated. Think about what happens. At the end of chapter 18, Elijah is riding high. If you're here with us, you'll remember. If not, go back and read it sometime. Um, But basically, he has had an incredible victory over the prophets of Baal, his opponents. An absolutely amazing knockdown against all odds. He, the one prophet, Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe, like nowhere, a nobody from nowhere, he, the one prophet, has turned the tide of the whole kingdom. God has won the people back to himself. And Elijah goes ahead of King Ahab to the city of Jezreel, triumphant. We can't know for sure, but we can imagine what he was probably thinking. This was the turning point. God had begun to win back the kingdom, and now it's going to unfold, he thought. Ahab will repent, and he will start reinstating the worship of the Lord. That was the moment it turned around But nothing like that happens at all. From verse 1, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, 
basically a death threat. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And the next verse we hear, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Instead of being wary of Jezebel as the leader of Baal's movement, King Ahab goes straight to her. Perhaps he'd been shaken by what happened on Mount Carmel, but he hadn't turned around. The penny has not dropped for him. And so instantly, Elijah's hopes crumble. And he suddenly finds himself exposed because if Ahab won't restrain Jezebel, then he is very vulnerable. And so we are told that he realises the situation he's in and he runs for his life. Just moments before he ran to the city in triumph, now he runs away from the city straight away. He has 24 hours to save his life, to get out of there. It's worth just pausing to notice and to let it sink in how profoundly wrong were the expectations Elijah probably had of what was going to happen and of what God was doing. It would have been perfectly reasonable, don't you think, for Elijah to think that, that, that now things were changing. The drought was over. Ahab had been shown the truth in the most dramatic way. The tide had turned. That's what he would have thought, but that wasn't the way it went at all. In fact, the opposite. And Elijah is totally devastated. Did you see it from verse 3? He was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Now, Elijah flees a really long way here. Here's a map that actually does not show you what you need to see. But there it is. It's a map of the Sinai Peninsula. Um, most of where Elijah has been is at the top of the map, okay, actually off the screen, all the action. He runs right down south into the southern kingdom. Um, Beersheba is, is the bit with the, the red X, kind of in the middle up the top. So he's come right to the bottom of the southern kingdom, and he's going to keep going way into the desert. Again, not a very useful PowerPoint, but it reminds you that, you know, that's the shape of the world Elijah was in, basically. That's what it does. But he flees a long way, right? As I said, he goes right to the bottom of the southern kingdom. Uh, He's left the northern kingdom and goes way south. And now he leaves his servant behind, did you see? And he goes further out into the desert. He goes to a desolate place because his soul is already in a desolate place. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He has reached his limit His project and his work have failed. He's done, and now he just wants it to be over. This is what we could call spiritual desolation. I've hesitated to just use the word depression because I don't want to oversimplify depression. But I do think Elijah is depressed. 
His sense of his own agency in the world has collapsed in a loss of hope. Elijah reaches a dark place, hoping to die. His energy is drained from him in a sense of disappointment and failure. And there is anger and frustration in his prayer too. Elijah's experience here reminds us of the simple truth that sometimes God's people will be shocked and desolated. We often say, very sagely, that God's plans are not our plans. Have you heard people say that? God's plans are not our plans. Now, that's true, but it's also in danger of smoothing over the skin-tearing jaggedness of that truth. What we need to say is not just that God's plans are not our plans, but that sometimes God's plans are not even in the same solar system. Sometimes God takes us down paths that would have terrified us impossibly if we knew in advance what they were. Sometimes God allows the good that we expect and hope for to vanish like a mirage. Or our picture of the future to suddenly shift in profoundly challenging ways. Sometimes we will be shocked and upended thrown into confusion and doubt and not know what way is up. And sometimes we will be desolated. Sometimes God's people may feel like Elijah feels here, at their end. Exhausted, demoralized and sick of life. Can we all please make sure we do not make the mistake of thinking that Christians never feel depressed or desolate or hopeless like this. That is, and I choose my words delicately, horse poo. Sometimes the faithful will endure desolation. But God does not forsake Elijah, and neither will he forsake us. This is the second thing we are reminded of here. Um, Can you notice how the Lord meets Elijah where he is in his desolation and cares for him? Look from verse 5. All at once, the angel, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. How how tender and beautiful is God's care for Elijah here. The touch, the food, the way he lets him sleep, gives him space. Doesn't try to argue with him or rebuke him doesn't get stuck into him for what he said and what he's prayed for. We could learn a lot here about caring for those who are desolate. The Lord does not forsake Elijah because he is desolate. And that is worth making sure we have really noticed. 
Brothers and sisters, I hope you are not in a place like this. But if you are, then please know that you are not alone. And you have not been abandoned by God. The Lord was no less present with Elijah here. Think about this. He was no less present with Elijah here under the broom bush. No less on his side, no less for him than he was on Mount Carmel. Elijah had given up, but God had not given up on him. But nor does God simply give way to Elijah's desolation. This is the other side of what we see here. God does not just leave Elijah where he is or affirm everything he's thought and said and felt. God is tender with Elijah here, but he doesn't He doesn't just accept his interpretation of the situation. He doesn't agree with everything Elijah has said. Frankly, God ignores most of what Elijah has asked for completely. They are not his best thoughts and feelings, and God refuses to take them too seriously. It's not that the Lord doesn't hear Elijah or doesn't care what he wants. It's that he loves him too much to give him what he wants now. The Lord knows that Elijah is not finished. We see this in a lovely link between verses 4 and 7. That is a bit hidden in the English, uh, but I still think it's worth noticing. See, Elijah says in verse 4, I have had enough, meaning that he's had enough of this work and, and of life. And then a little later, the angel says to Elijah, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. But here's the thing, the word for too much there is actually the same word in the Hebrew as the word Elijah uses for enough. So there's a link. And Elijah says, I've had enough. And the angel says, the journey is enough. It's like God is subtly drawing Elijah into a different account of his experience. You've had enough. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But not enough of life, just enough of this journey. It's a way of re-narrating Elijah's experience to bring hope back into it. It's beautiful and, again, I think a model of pastoral care in many ways. God's kind of practicing narrative therapy, I think. God's God's care for us, friends, is wise. It is purposeful and deliberate and not always affirming of how we see things. Sometimes God gently but firmly says no to our requests and to our take on things and to our desires because he wants to take us somewhere else. That can be bloody annoying. But Elijah's experience here ought to make us hopeful that even if we can't see it right now, perhaps God is caring for us in this way too. Well, there's one more thing that Elijah's experience teaches us that I want to notice today. We're reminded here that sometimes... A journey involving desolation is hiding something glorious. To see what I mean and to see this, we need to pay close attention to verse 8. 
So he got up, this is Elijah now, he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now what's important about this verse is the symbolism. 40 days and 40 nights is a very important length of time in the Old Testament because it's the length of time that Moses spends on Mount Sinai when Israel is brought out of Egypt in the Exodus. And Mount Sinai is exactly where Elijah is going because Horeb is just the other name for Mount Sinai. It had two names, Mount Sinai, Horeb. So Elijah is going to Mount Sinai, taking 40 days and 40 nights to get there. What's more, he's just been fed in the desert with bread, miraculously, by God. These are all symbols of the Exodus. Now, so in this verse, what I want us to see is what happens is that suddenly, as if it bursts up from the surface of the water, something you haven't seen, suddenly it turns out Elijah is doing something that's an incredibly big deal, something really symbolic. He is making a new exodus journey to Mount Sinai. And he's, he makes this journey after overthrowing a foreign god, just like Moses did. Now, we won't dive into all this now, but next week we will see that out at Mount Sinai, at Horeb, this symbolism continues, and Elijah kind of repeats a lot of the events of Exodus. For now, though, I just want to notice this surprising twist. The symbolism shows us that even though this is not how Elijah pictured things going, but God did have a purpose hidden underneath the horrendous rupture of Elijah's expectations that led him to deep despair, hidden underneath that, the seed of something incredible was growing. And that can be true for us too. All through the New Testament, there are reminders that God grows things through difficult times. Suffering produces perseverance, writes the Apostle Paul. Perseverance, character, and character hope. Discipline always feels painful at the time, says the book of Hebrews. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Sometimes, hidden beneath the surface of a journey of desolation, something wonderful is growing, and that is a hopeful thing, isn't it? I began by talking about the experience of being disillusioned. You might not remember because there was a fair bit of disillusionment going on with the microphone. I really hope that seeing Elijah go through a similar experience, seeing the way he was desolated when his expectations were exploded and how God cared for him through that desolation so that the way opened to something glorious, which we'll see more about that next week. I hope that will be helpful and encouraging to you if you have been bitterly disappointed or will help you to encourage others who have. But before we finish, it's important to notice one further thing that our passage points us to and that gives us the most profound encouragement to persevere. 
And that is that in Jesus Christ, God himself travelled this same path. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus went into the desert and, like Elijah, faced the darkness. Listen to how it's recorded at the start of Mark's Gospel. The Spirit sent him, that's Jesus, out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. I'm sure you noticed the links. 40 days and 40 nights, angels attended him. This is like Elijah's desert experience. You see, Jesus too was exposed to emptiness and desolation. He had to go through darkness and grief in order to do what God called him to do. But there was a difference with him. Unlike Elijah, the darkness that Jesus faced did not come from within himself. Elijah's darkness came in part from his own disappointed expectations and perhaps his hurt pride and anger. Jesus' darkness came only from without, from the Satan. The desolation he faced, you see, it did not belong to him. It did not fit him. He did not need to be disillusioned of anything. And yet he faced desolation anyway. And he endured it for our sake, for us. That's why he did it. So that he could help us. So that he could represent us. Stand in our place as one who knew what life was like for us. This is a big thought to bring in at the end. You're not supposed to do that, but just stay with it for a moment. Listen to how the book of Hebrews explains this. It's extraordinary. This is Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus had to be made like them. It says, like them, humans, us. Fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus suffered when he was tempted. He went into the wilderness with us, you see, and he exposed himself to desolation so that he could help us, so that he could save us. There is a reason not to give up, friends. Even when our hopes are dashed, and even if we are bitterly disappointed. Because it reminds us that our experience is not too far from him for him to save. To know that he has been where I am, that he has suffered the same disappointment and grief and desolation. To know that is to know that his work was done for me and that he stands at the right hand of God interceding not just for people whose lives are neater and nicer and less troubled than mine, not just for others but for me, for you. 
To be disillusioned and to be made desolate and to still press on in hope, that is a damn hard journey. But we can press on because Jesus really stands with us. And he is the guarantee that hidden within our desolation is a path to glory. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for permitting us to see Elijah in his weakness and frailty at this moment of anguish and desolation. We thank you for the reminder it is of our own weakness, our own depression. Lord, have mercy upon those of us who are in a dark place and struggling. May their eyes and ours be drawn evermore to your son Jesus who went too into this place so that he might save us. We put ourselves in his hands, trusting in your mercy. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.